Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. I hope you are having a wonderful day. Today we're digging into a few questions from Ask Nick episode 66 from about a year ago, and that's using surround sound in your recordings, talking about the real book, talking about where the greats learn from, and a lot more. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If, if you are, please leave a review, leave a rating on your favorite podcast app, and uh, we'll catch you real soon. Enjoy the episode. Jazz Day, International Jazz Day to be exact. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is that our registration for the Jazz Trombone Bootcamp is open. Can't wait to do uh, that week, June 14 through 18 with everyone. So make sure you uh, click that link if you're on YouTube or Facebook to go and register for that. We only have one or two more masterclass participant slots available and a lot more uh, auditor and participant levels. There's three levels this year, so you can kind of fit your budget. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. So we're going to have great, great guest artists. We have Steve Davis, Andre Hayward. We have Michael Davis and Vincent Gardner. It's going to be great. So again, that's June 14th through June 18th. And we're going to be doing that uh, on Zoom. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait for that. So if you want to get signed up, check that link out. Really one of the best trombone weeks of the year. So uh, jazz trombone weeks, I will specify. Jazz trombone weeks of the year. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is something that I don't always get to, and that is something I'm launching for this summer, which is a summer semester. Uh, The summer studio is open for registration. So if you want to open for summer lessons, um, I'm actually doing it like a package this year uh, because sometimes you get just one lesson. It's really not enough. And sometimes you don't get um, without direction and without um, a project, you know, you don't really have direction for the summer. So for the summer, we're trying to, I'm trying to put, put together a patch, package, which is like a get-to-know-you session, and then, you know, we'll kind of kick off the with a, a project, you know, and uh, some assignments for the summer. And then we will go ahead and do co- three lessons throughout the summer, and then we'll go ahead and do a pro- final project evaluation and get actual feedback. I'll record a video and send you some notes and stuff like that. So I'm excited about that and excited to be able to share that. So I just wanted to drop it here because it's launching it's open now so if you're watching the live stream you're the first to hear about it but there's only five slots so if you're interested sign up soon because i can only do a few lessons over the course of the summer just to um keep my mind at ease uh yeah i do do in-person lessons just send me an email if about those nickfinzer at gmail.com how do you balance between a firm amateur but not too tight i don't really think about it that way I think about the airstream and I think about staying relaxed. I think about uh, a great tremendous James Burton used to talk about, and I'm stealing this from him. He would say, you know, make an M, M, and that's how it should feel. And then you blow, right? Obviously, things are get, they change a little bit as you get to the upper register, lower register. But in general, I don't focus on the quote unquote tightness of an embouchure. I focus on making sure that it's set. And then I, and then I uh, focus on the airflow and air stream, air column, however you want to think about it. All of those things kind of combined. After transcribing solo, is it better to write down the solo or use computer software? You mean just like how you notate? Um, I usually put it into the computer because my handwriting is really bad. Um, I have written plenty down. I think it's a good practice to do it at least once to try to do it all by hand. But some, some of my students are faster at writing by hand or prefer it, so we do it that way. But I always put that part at the end uh the writing part the writing part always goes to the end the writing the transcript the writing of the transcription down part always goes at the end so it doesn't really matter that much i don't think in the scheme of things as long as you write it down at the end after you've already internalized the transcription i think you've already gotten a lot what are your thoughts on music schools emphasizing academia for music students as a compared to students that want to teach themselves 
how to play the music. I don't really view it that way. I guess, I, so I don't really think of it as one or the other. Like it's not academia or nothing. It's not teaching yourself or nothing. Um, there are certain elements that you can learn from being in academia that you can't learn on your own because you need somebody to show you. So whether that's through a mentor or that's through academia, um, I think you still need that information and you need someone with that experience. You can only get so far on your own. You need someone to kind of help show you the ropes, I think. Like you don't know everything and none of us can know everything. So it's important to get that outside feedback. So for me, that's what academia is for. That's where studying with someone is for, is to get feedback and opinion. And that's all it is, it's one opinion. You gotta get a lot of opinions. You know, I try to tell my students to get out of there. Don't stay with me forever. A couple years is enough. Go off to somebody else because I'm going to tell you the same things because my point of view is my point of view, you know. And um, so you're gonna need, you need different teachers. You need different experiences, different schools, like different schools have different emphases in terms of the repertoire, in terms of how they organize the program, in terms of everything like that. So you have to search out what makes sense for you. And that's not going to be the same for everybody. So I wouldn't, uh, I mean, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue only in that, like, you need both. You can't be a successful musician with only academic learning. And you can't be, well, you can be successful without academia, for sure. But you need some kind of mentor. Like, most everyone I know has some kind of mentor, you know. There's no, I don't think there's a right should. Every student has their own way in their own path man like if you have a teacher that's making you do like a preset thing you're probably with the wrong teacher like you know you need there's there's like categories of things of course like things you need to do you know to learn the music you got to learn songs you got to learn solos you got to learn vocabulary you got to learn the style but you you can't um it doesn't fit the pace doesn't fit every single person the the specifics that, of things that they like and don't like but like i said like a great independent independently motivated student is going to be a better student at school you know if you're used to that that's what you need i would rather somebody learn on their own i guess is the short answer if i had to pick is there anything you wish you would have done more while you were a student at juilliard yeah there were some opportunities that i wish i had gotten while i was there in terms of what opportunities there were from the school itself. That was out of my control though. I think if I could do anything differently, it would be changing my mindset about what it meant to go there and that it wasn't anything more than just an entry point. It was not the like defining moment. It was not, you know, it's not the end all be all of schools. It's not, you know, you once you go through there, you realize that the school ha does a lot of things to perpetuate the school, you know? which is the same of a lot of places, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a fact. So anyway, I would have done more to just kind of get out into the scene and worry less about the school, I guess. I would have worried less about it. Who did the greats learn from? Well, they learned from the generation before them. They didn't have to go to academia. And that's what I mean when I say you've got to have a mentor of some kind to show you the ropes, someone on some instrument. It doesn't have to be trombone. It doesn't have to be formal. But you do, I think, need someone at some point to show you you know, those first couple guys, you know, going all the way back to Kid Ori, whatever, you know, they had people that they looked up to and just kind of took it the next step. So just a little little bits at a time, you know, one step at a time, 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 where we've gone from Kid Ori to Michael Deese or Elliot Mason, you know, that was a slow process. Would you consider making an album the medium of surround sound? Sure, I would. Um, the problem is, I mean, there's this Atmos, Dolby Atmos, thing that you can release but like nobody listens to that like a very 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 small amount of people listen to it so the amount of cost involved to do that 
is not worth it. Not not trying to like say I wouldn't do it, but it would be great. But um, it's not worth it if you don't if you're not already set up for it because you have to actually be in a studio that's set up for it and format it and mix it and master it separately for surround sound because it's uh, you know more channels right it's not just left and right so if people don't know he's talking about like four or five channels instead of two left and right i have recorded albums that have had that option we just released an album on the label that has it but the process of getting that release is like totally separate and it's not it's not worth it for the amount of people that listen that way because most people are listening on their phones and head in headphones but i would consider it if somebody wanted to do it um, I think there are some labels that specialize in doing that sort of high-end audio. Alan asks, how do you help make a student confident in the process when it takes a while to see it all come to fruition? You have to just keep reminding them. You have to get them to buy in um, and just bring it up again and again and again. And you just have to know that that's what it is, man. You've got to have that the longevity and you got to just show them something that happens when you do stuff like little bits at a time, you know, one step in front into the other, like one transcription at a time, the next one's easier, the next one's easier, the next one's easier. But the process is super important. You have to figure out what your process is, how you're going to implement that process, how you creating a process that you can stick to is super important. That longevity is the most important thing, you know, whatever your process that you'll stick to is, then that's what you should do. That's what I think. If whether it's content, whether it's albums, whether it's recordings, whether it's videos, whether it's school, whether it's transcriptions, whether it's practicing, you have to have a practice of practice, you know, and it's really easy to let it slip away. And, you know, that's something that I've realized in my own life, in my practice, is that the practice of practicing has slipped away. And I've gotten into doing other things. I got into a practice of doing this every Friday because it's fun and because it allowed me to kind of connect with the audience while we we're stuck at home for the last year, you know? So it's really, it's really important. You just have to show, you know, I, that's how I try to impart it on my students is just show them the process is ongoing. Just because I'm the professor doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not still working on stuff and having a daily practice and putting out records and putting out stuff and just doing things, you know, I don't know. I try that's why I try my best to do that. How do you practice effectively? Do you plan out your practice session first? Also, do you do the same fundamentals routine every day or do you change it up? Uh, I think it's different for different points in your development. But practicing effectively is exactly what you're saying. You get you need to know what you need to do before you start. So whether you plan it out in a practice journal. When I was in college, I did a practice journal all the time and I kept that really detailed. I've got some videos on YouTube about that. So if you want to find those and then there's a links to those, there's links to a PDF of like a practice journal sample page. So you could download that. It's all free. Just go find it and you can download it and see what that's what I would write down, like exactly what I'm doing and plan it out. So to effectively practice, I had to find out like what was the best way to break up my practice sessions. How long was effective? I found 90 minutes is kind of the max effectiveness 90 minutes maybe two hours if i'm really focused maybe even less now maybe it's more like 45 minutes to an hour and then i gotta take a break and then come back and do some more and come back and do some more so you got to find how long you can practice for how you're going to break up the material so that you can practice it effectively meaning like i do technique stuff in one session i do jazz stuff in another session i am starting a new routine for the summer i change it up often um, when I was in college, I had a long routine. My routines come shorter and shorter, shorter, shorter. I think it's really important to have an effective, efficient routine so you can actually practice. Um, I, before I would go through an hour or 90 minutes, two hours of like f warm up when I was at Eastman, like I had a really, really long routine and it was kind of silly because it was, I was building good habits, which was great, but I was not being as effective as I could 
if I had found exercises that could really just be like, you know, kill two birds with one stone, as they say. So I do a routine for a while and then I switch it up and then I switch it up again. But I try to make sure everything is always hits all the major categories. So sound, flexibility, articulation. As long as I hit those three things, I'm not super tied to any specific exercises. And same for my students, like find some stuff that works for you. I like doing pitch bends. I've been really focused on developing the pedal register over the last year or two years. It's still not anywhere close to where I want it to be. It's better than it was a year ago, two years ago. It's a process. You got to be stay committed to that process, man. What advice would you give to strengthen the muscles to play more sharply? I, I don't like that approach. That's too physical of an approach you I like to focus on air and I like to focus on being relaxed so if you want to play with intensity that intensity can come from the airstream and the articulation perhaps but I wouldn't focus on strength because strength builds tension in my opinion strength builds tension if you want to build that strength and be relaxed that's a good idea and by to do that I play long note melodies in the upper register how insensitive is one that you start on a high a and you know they start on that high a and like build that within the realm of staying relaxed because if you get tense you're going to hurt yourself you're going to hurt your chops you're going to hurt your development so and playing like sharply or playing more physically is never something i would recommend staying relaxed is what i recommend um, for longevity for ease of uh clarity for just ease of playing i want it to be easy i want to just connect from here to the sound as easily as possible is there any jazz club you haven't gotten to perform at that you'd wish that you would like to or wish you had yeah i mean i would love to get to europe and play at a bunch of the clubs there i haven't i've only played once at bim house i've only played um i've never played at the north sea festival i've always wanted to play at the north sea jazz festival so there's one she says what are your favorite standards to play in odd meter i don't like playing standards in odd meters <laughs> There was a time and a place. I like playing It Might As Well Be Spring in seven. Like that. Because it's kind of like, uh, has that feel already anyway. But um, maybe I'm lying. I could get into playing standards. I have an arrangement of all the things in five that I kind of like, but I kind of, I only like arrangements of standards and odd meters when it's like an arrangement. I don't really like just saying like, all right, let's play this in seven. It usually ends up being um, not very well thought out in my opinion. But if you come up with like an arrangement that's like, oh, we could do this and like have hits and like it's actually thoughtful, then I'm, then I'm into it. But I, I just don't like saying like, oh, let's play this in seven or this in 11. I, I, like it, I like it much better when somebody has an arrangement. Underrated jazz records. I mean, there's so many jazz records that 90% of them are underrated. I think Duke Ellington is underrated. I think people think it's old. I think he's underrated. I was just listening to um, a great tune of his yesterday, Love You Madly. It's great, man. It's so happy. And just like that old stuff, the, the quote unquote old stuff or like the sweets, I think it's all underrated. I know people say Duke Ellington a lot when they talk about influences or they talk about like important jazz musicians but i actually don't think that many people really are into it i think they just say it oh cabin in the sky curtis fuller that's a record that people don't know about that's really really great and oh there's a cannonball adderley record called great love songs i think it's cannonball and nat 
with uh, an orchestra doing like studio orchestra arrangements. Question about engraving. Do you think putting a minus four or whatever above a held note indicate a release on four in that case is overkill muddles up the chart visually? I suppose it could muddle up the chart visually, but if you really want it off on four, then you should mark, you should tell, give as many instructions as possible. I don't see any problem with that. If you put it on every note, I think that would be a lot. But I would say if it's not obvious, whenever it's not obvious, I usually try to write some stuff like that. I kind of like leaving stuff up to the players unless there's some reason why I need to tell them to release on a certain beat or something, which would normally be because of like, oh, if they don't get off by four, this voicing that comes in on four is going to be really weird because their notes are going to hang over or something like that. So. If there was a specific reason, I would do it. Otherwise, I probably would not make a habit of it because it makes the charts, like you said, kind of messy. Everyone has opinions of this, but do you believe in the 10,000 hour rule? I don't think it's a rule. I think it's a guideline. I'm into the idea of it. I don't think it's like once you hit this number, you're, you're good. I think you could be good at 7,000 hours or 15,000, but it does take a long time. And that's part of the practice thing, you know, the long term view, the ongoing practice. I think it's important to uh, give it a grain of salt. How were new genres of jazz invented, like Bop, Cool, Jazz, Fusion, etc.? How they did, They've just found new ways of expressing themselves from their current situation. So like a lot of the guys that started playing bebop came out of being in big bands and being playing parts night after night after night and not getting to blow that much and improvise. And so the, as the improvisational skills increased, you know, they started um, in hotel rooms. There's like some bootleg recordings you can find of like bird in the hotel room playing cats playing on suitcases and like just kind of experimenting you know before any of that stuff became bebop all of that the names for everything came afterward and the names aren't super important the names are just like what people in the media jazz media or historians or whatever decided to call stuff talent versus work the word talent is one of my least favorite words in the whole english language because i think the concept of talent is a farce and that if you are talented that will make you successful talent is like a predisposition in my opinion like you are talented like at something my brother let's use my brother my brother brother is 611 so he did nothing to do that he is not you know talented in being tall he is tall right and he played basketball so it's like you would say oh he's talented because he was born tall you're kind of that's kind of like no that just is a fact so it's like if you have a predisposition to music quote unquote talent then of course you're going to be better at music than somebody who is not predisposed or does not have talent so talent only gets you so far and work comes all everything after that it's skill yeah the word talent really just bothers me you know because it's like yes you are talented but the work is what makes you any great person at anything it's the work. It's not talent. There's predisposition, but it's not. Uh, what's your opinion of the plunger for trombones? And is there a go-to musician to listen to and emulate? And do you think we've exhausted mute types for brass? Have we exhausted mute types? No. What's my opinion of plunger? Love the plunger. Most people don't deal with the plunger because I don't even know amongst my students, only some of them are interested in dealing with the plunger. And that's okay. But um, let me give you a list. If you want to open horn plunger, Al Gray. Mute plunger, pixie and plunger, you got to check out Tricky Sam, 
you got to check out Lawrence Brown and you got to check out Wycliffe Gordon and Steve Teray. Michael Deese does gr great with the Pixie and Plunger. Ed Neumeister has great Pixie and Plunger. As a teacher, do you find it hard to get students to apply the exercises you work on in lessons into their playing? Yes, I do find that to be difficult. It's not always, we don't always have time to go and like, it feels like holding their hand sometimes, you know, if you if you do that. And nobody wants to feel like their hand is being held, not when they're 22 years old, 25 years old, you know, you have that feeling of um, wanting to do it yourself. So you got to do it yourself. And it's, it's the thing is that most things take a long time. And it could be that the things we work on in the very first semester of lessons, say as a master's student, it might literally be two years until like that start, that stuff starts coming out and you're playing and you'll have already graduated by then. You know, I think about stuff that I'm practicing. There's stuff I've been practicing since undergrad. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've been trying to play and get good at playing whole step pairs of tritones. So I mean like B flat and E natural and then F sharp and C. You could use it on like C, those two, you could use it on like C7 sharp 11, for example, or C7 flat five. It's just a shape, right? So I've been practicing it, but to try to play it fast, is really, really hard. I can play it slow, but I've literally been working on it for like 10 years and I still can't do it. And doing that in 12 keys. Um, so it's, it takes a long time. What does an ideal day look like in the life of Nick Finzer? Not having to wake up to an alarm. I'm, a, I'm not a morning person. I like being awake at night. I'm a jazz musician. So hey, goes together, right? I mean, it's basically just being able to do what I want, just like everybody else. But yeah, I like a, things I like to do in a day would be have time to write, have time to write music, have time to practice, have time to exercise, and um, have a gig. <laughs> would be Those would be a couple of the ideal day, I suppose. When you're not working on music, do you have any outside hobbies or activities you like to do to stay creative? I like to do activities that kind of clear my mind. I'm gonna run a half marathon tomorrow, so I like to do stuff like that. I don't really have a lot of other hobbies. I am pretty keep pretty busy with um, you know, teaching, performing, writing, and um, running the label, focusing on exercise, endurance type sport stuff, you know, reading. The last two books I read was Seth Godin, The Practice, and um, Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. I'm kind of, I'm in, I'm in a mission over the next period of time to do less, <laughs> to focus, kind of focus my efforts, because sometimes they go this way. And I always talk about go deep, not wide. And sometimes I go wide accidentally, just because I'm like, oh yeah, let's do this, oh, let's do this. Blah, blah, blah. And so things kind of go like that. And I have to like actively take the role to like pull it back together. So. That I'm in, a, I'm in a pull it together moment here. How do you teach students to transcribe, especially younger kids who don't think they can do it? Uh, by giving them small pieces of transcription, transcriptions to do, by giving them a transcription that's actually within their wheelhouse, it's not gonna push them too far out. It's something that's short, so like one chorus of blues perhaps. Um, I like to start people with Miles Davis on so what, because there's not a lot of chord changes. You can be like, all right, it's all the white notes on the piano, so figure that out. Maybe in a couple of exceptions, but, and you have to create that momentum of success. Um, so like, for example, even if you give them something harder, like Curtis Fuller Blue Train, I always say, just leave the hard part out. Leave the double time out. Do everything but the double time. And we'll come back to the double time later. Because there's no reason why you can't come back later. You know, people get hung up on some hard part of a transcription. Or like when I tell students to maybe go transcribe another instrument, like Jackson, he's gonna go on a journey of transcribing some Freddie Hubbard. But when you get to a spot that's too hard or it's too high or it's some like weird trumpet trick, you gotta just either figure something out to make, take its place or just leave it out because it's not that important. You've gotten 
80% of the information, that last 20% should not stop you. Okay, Jack says, why does everyone, every lead sheet of impressions say the chords are D minor seven and E flat minor seven? There's a G in the bass on like every single downbeat in the A section, both the live and studio recordings. Explain this. Somebody wrote it down. There's an interesting podcast about the real book on 99% Invisible. Maybe you've seen this. Um, they talk about the origins of the real book from some Berkeley students in the 70s. My guess is that is the answer to the question, is that it became codified in that way. Would you say, would you prefer that it was written as G7 or like G sus, like D minor seven over G? But I also think maybe Miles just said, just play D Dorian or like C major or circled around D. I don't know, you'd have to ask Ron Carter. Maybe we should try to ask Ron Carter. He's been doing some Q and A's during this, uh, this uh, quarantine. This is a really different opinion for some people, but do you think that the real book is as unreliable as some people say it is? The answer depends on how true to the original you wanna be and how informed you wanna be and how much the details matter to you. The details matter a great deal to me and are, they are something that I focus on in my playing, something I focus on in my musicianships that taking care of the details matters and that that's one of the most important like essential things to my to me in studying music. So to me, the real book is unreliable because of that reason, that they did not deal with the details and they rushed through a lot of it and then it just became codified in a way like we were just talking about that might not be correct. There's a lot of it that is correct, of course. They arbitrarily selected versions of songs to be the definitive version when maybe that's not the definitive version for me. So I prefer to learn tunes from recordings because that means that you can learn different versions, you know? I was talking about this in the masterclass we did on Monday, just like there's no such thing as the changes when you think about a tune that's now part of the canon. Like there are the quote unquote original changes, but after that, it's like there's always a range of options that are possible. Like you're moving between key centers and you can freely do that. You can freely move between the key centers and you can get there with tritone substitutions, different substitutions, diminished substitutions, all these different things. So um, I try to not think of the changes, especially when I'm thinking about a tune, like a songbook tune. Cause like uh, Miles Davis or whoever who played it originally was already reharming those tunes. So the real book is a, it's just a guide. So always check the real book. I would always check the recordings cause you might discover that the real book just has a different set of changes. Not that it's quote unquote wrong. I just threw them all away. Cause number one, they're really big. I guess they're probably all on PDF now, but um, when you when you used to have to buy them and carry them around, they were really big and heavy. I mean, I don't know if I would say I despise it. I would say it can be a good jumping off point, but you always got to check it. Did you check the changes or like, where did you get those from? Because it's the same on the iReal app. It's not just the real book. Like it's just versions of changes. For example, recently I was working on Conception, that tune. And if you look at all these different versions and listen to them, they all have different changes. And that's okay. But like the changes that are in the iReal app, you might have to change them because they're not they're not to what you learned, you know? So you have to learn from recordings. You have to develop that skill skill to be able to hear, hear harmony. I think that's a very important skill to develop. It's a difficult one to develop, but you you definitely should work on it. I would not say that you can be, there's gonna be a cap. There's, a, there's gonna be a ceiling to what you can do because you can't hear what's going on um, if you can't hear harmony as well as melody. Um, and especially that even goes if you have perfect pitch, like if you can't hear the harmony because you're hearing the notes, like that's also problematic. I, you know, I've worked with students in the past who have perfect pitch and they hear 
the color they can hear the color tones or they hear the notes but they have no idea what the harmony is and they can like mimic it and like go to like a note or something like that but you have to be able to hear the harmony that's all the colors together right the aggregate of all the colors together so wouldn't say that i despise the real book i would say it's better for your education to to do it you know it's a shortcut and you're better not taking the shortcut it's better the hard way you know do it the hard way it's going to be better for you in the long run you get to choose one elliot mason playing bassoon marshall jilks playing clarinet or slide hampton playing flute who are you choosing actually there's some good drama players that play flute as well i don't know why especially in the latin scene like they double flute and trombone which is kind of crazy right i would like to see marshall playing clarinet that was my choice if you had to travel back in time and jam with a jazz trombone player and do a duet together who would it be and why well it would be jj because he's my hero I would also do. I would also like to do it with, with Lawrence Brown because he was a virtuoso of his time, and um, I think he would have a lot to offer um, from a much different perspective. You know, it would be interesting to try to learn from someone who didn't have the perspective of the last seventy years of music and just the pre nineteen fifties version of whatever the scene was. If you could go back to your time at Eastman, what would you want to do more of? I've answered this question before, and I what I usually say is spend more time cultivating relationships and not just being uh, locked in a practice room because I, I just locked myself in the practice room and killed myself with work the whole time. I was do I had like a 15 student studio. I was gigging five or six nights a week. I was teaching, you know, all day on Saturdays. I was doing a lot of other teaching stuff. Like I was just like burying myself. And um, so I would do more to go back and connect with the people that I actually went to school with. I didn't connect with the people I went to school with till after we finished, really. The social aspect is really important. Like the people that you're at school with are going to be people that are the beginnings of your community in whatever town you move to. Uh, it's pretty important. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty essential. This is an easy answer. What do you shed when you have minimal time? Long tones, lip slurs, pitch bends, anything that's only fundamentals focused like what are what is the few things that i can do in this short amount of time that are going to set me up for success in the gigs that i have to do do you double instruments what's your opinion of doubling brass instruments it's great it's good for working you have to do it on broadway i've done it myself yes bass trombone yes tuba no french horn no trumpet i don't like playing those i can go bigger i can't go smaller really and i've done it i've done it on broadway is it my favorite thing to do no i prefer my kind of my musical path is not to be a I don't necessarily want to just be a freelancer playing any type of gig for any situation. Of course, I love to just play, of course, and do many, many, many things in different areas. But like, if I think like, if I'm, what is the thing that I'm trying to do? I'm trying to play creative music and improvise and like be an improviser. And that's my focus. That's not my focus to like, just play um, any gig for any situation, you know? I'm happy to do it and I'm very grateful for all the times I've gotten to do that. But I'm just saying like, that's not, if I have to think about where I'm going, um, it's not my focus and doubling is not my focus. I've done it plenty though. Have you made progress on drums? I'm about the same. I can still just like barely play. I need to get my hands back together because I used to play more like rudiment stuff. I had, I got to get that back together because when I just like having like a concept that's too far ahead of your skills is really bad because when I hit the drums, it sounds so bad that I just don't want to keep on playing, you know, because I know what it's supposed to sound like. You know, just like, you know, so many other people, you know what it's supposed to sound like. So then you like go and you do it. And then it's like, oh, my God, that sounds terrible. And what percentage of your listening do you reckon is music you don't like slash are listening to for context of the genre and history and not necessarily because you enjoy it? 
Uh, recently, that's the majority of my listening is I'm checking out what everyone's doing, what the industry is putting out. Like I've listened this morning to whatever was on the Spotify State of Jazz playlist, all new jazz playlists, uh, Apple Music Currents, uh, all those type of things. So I, I got to know what people are doing. I want to know what people are doing. Stay on top of it. So most of the time, I'm just going to pitch one more time. If you are a trombonist looking for something fun to do this summer, June 14th through 18th, Jazz Trombone Bootcamp. DJ, who's on here, will be helping us again and uh, with the camp. And then also I launched just today, you guys are the first to know, just the summer studio for 2021. So you can find uh, more information out about that. Just go to my store. Coming up with a plan for the summer and um, having some evaluations and really kind of digging in, creating a plan for the summer because it's a lot of, can be a lot of like free time to do um uh, stuff you meant to be doing all along or you can kind of just get lost in everything that you're supposed to be doing so i encourage you to check that out if you want he says any opinions on ergonomic tools to hold the trombone i haven't had too many issues yet so i haven't explored very many of them i think you have to do what you need to do you will you got to make sure that you don't have too much tension so if they help alleviate the tension then i'm all i'm all for it i know you know when you hold the bass trombone for a long time that, that strap sometimes can be really helpful at like alleviating stuff. And my time with Ture, Steve Ture, he, you know, makes these hand grips that make it a little easier to kind of grip your horn. He custom makes them with plastic and kind of to grip, grip onto the horn and just be a little more comfortable. So I think if it helps you, then it's great, man. Okay, thanks everybody for joining this week. Hope you have an amazing weekend and we'll be back next Friday with another edition of our Q&A. And uh, until then, happy practicing, and we'll see you next time.